Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball 30th episode and... Is this 30? Hey, good for us. This is the podcast where we watch all of the Disney Animated Canon and uh, decide how wrong we were about it the first time through. Yeah, I'm Talon Lee, he, him, media scholar and former cult member. Uh, and I'm Fox Lee, she, her, 2D animation enthusiast and... Disney fan of considerable girth who was extremely the right age to be the target audience for this episode's entry. Yeah, we watched 1995's Pocahontas, and the feelings are complicated. (laughs) Very, very complicated. I, uh, I'm gonna stop myself from opening this with a giant waffle by actively asking you to keep us on track. What's our first segment, Talon? Alright, so first up, we want to explain the plot to this movie in 60 seconds, and it's your turn. Oh, okay. No, that's fine. I There's not a lot of events in this movie. Mm. There's a lot of feelings and not too much that actually happens, so... Your we'll time starts now. Okay, a bunch of sailors leave from England with the goal of colonizing, well, the area which we will now know as Jamestown in Virginia, where there are a tribe... Of uh, native people living, doing their own thing, having full and complete lives as real people uh, already. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, our male love interest, John Smith, immediately collides with our main character, Pocahontas. Uh, and in really very short order, they fall in love, despite him being a twit and her basically needing to fix everything about him. Mostly the colonialism, but not nearly enough the colonialism. <laughs> anyway, things go south. Everybody decides they want to fucking murder each other. Um, but by a, a last-minute dramatic declaration of love that saves his life, Pocahontas stops everyone from fighting. Uh, and as I understand it, America went very well from there on out and everything was okay. Literally on the button. <laughs> I may have left out some salient details. <laughs> Did you, though? <laughs> Did you, though? <laughs> the important thing about this movie is that if we are going to take it at its face value, then it needs to be considered a wishful alternate history of America. Yeah. And not, in any meaningful way, a retelling of actual historical events. And also, look... We are settler people on settled land. Our sovereignty was never ceded to us. We're you. in Darawal country, and I have the names of the people we killed on our streets that we wear like scars. For us to sit here and to say, well, America's terrible colonialism, and sit here running down this movie shitty point by shitty point is just going to be an exercise in making us look like we should feel good, which we fucking shouldn't. Not that we're... Uh, you know, keeping score on this front, but if anything, our relationship to colonialism is probably worse because we did a better job of genociding. Yeah. Like, we caught most of the way. Yeah, yeah. Whew! So, when it comes to Pocahontas, like, what one thing I've said throughout this series of, of, um, po- of podcasts is the idea of Hamlet and Hangliders, where you can, if you want to, make an argument about a work from within the space of that work that would basically vi- you know, invalidate the, po- the point of the piece. Like, why doesn't Hamlet solve this problem in these other better ways? Well, because Hamlet couldn't solve those problems because the whole point is that Hamlet is a flawed fuck-up. And that means 
that even though there is room for us to sit here and go, that didn't happen historically, um, it's not super valuable to do that. The, I mean, it's definitely worth remarking on, but it's worth remarking on in the sense of this is the yikesy shit about this movie, not yeah. in the sense of this is, you know, what's wrong or interesting to consider about the story mm-hmm. uh, on its own merit. Like, boy, are we going to talk about it when we, we open a certain door uh, momentarily. But uh, otherwise, where we are going to take this movie as it intends itself to be taken. Yep. That said, next segment would be your relationship to this movie. <sighs> yeah. I adore this movie. <laughs> I, I mean, the easiest way I can describe the complex feelings here is just that this was a movie laser targeted at a, what would I have been, 12? Yeah. At, at a 12-year-old white girl with a hippie mom who, you know, enjoyed going down the backyard to the lakeshore of her home and letting the wind play with her hair and getting a little rained on and thinking how close she was to nature. and Yeah. Uh, it's a... It's definitely a recycled white person's spirituality for suburban girls, but that's what I was. And also, this movie is breathtakingly made. Oh my god, it's gorgeous! And I love every song, and I know every word, and and I'm in love with several characters. It is genuinely flabbergasting to go back, and- because, like- when we went back and talked about The Lion King, we still were able to go, hey, look, they cheat down the animation at this point. And, like, sure, it was one moment, the final climactic fight. But- Oh, that- well, hey, Pocahontas does have a moment like that, too. We'll talk about it later. But the thing is, I didn't notice it. Because <laughs> this, this movie is so consistently beautiful. I The shot going up the boat on the way- uh, at the very end, I was like, oh, that's a 3D model boat. That's basically the only point oh, where I had a moment man. where I was like, oh, this is a thing being made. I mean, if you're paying attention to textures, you can tell the canoes are 3D modeled, and uh, oh. Grandmother Willow is largely CG. Okay. I mean, what's just by the nature of their textures are so much more complicated than everything else around them. They could only be CG. Uh-huh. Um. But it's not, it's not distracting, and even where you can obviously tell it, like the part of Grandmother Willow that is hand-animated versus the part of her that is computer textured it's not jarring i don't have a problem with it i still think it looks really good and you know of course all the traditional animation here is oh oh my god and all the landscapes and the i love it it's gorgeous (laughs) so for me my relationship to this movie is i'm not happy with myself about it because as far as my relationship to this movie goes it's one i'm not super proud of in part because i didn't ever really treat this movie like this movie. It's a thing I didn't watch until I was actually dating you. Uh, I never saw the movie in theaters, um, but I had an opinion about it growing up, which I know is basically inherited from my dad making racist comments about the poster and just ridiculing the idea of it. Wow. Um, and I never saw it. He never saw it. Neither of us know anything about it, but I know I had a very negative opinion of it. He definitely would not have ridiculed it for the right reasons either. Mm. And then uh, I fell into that vein of Disney commentariat kind of online media of like, oh, well, this is the one that sucks because of all the colonialism. And so I had a very negative opinion of it. And I hadn't really watched it a second time. Uh, and I think this might be literally the second time I've seen this movie all the way through. Um, and it 
It's very complicated. It is it is a complex feeling about this. But Boy, for the, is it. And for the most part, the way I feel about the way I felt about this movie is it's a very ugly moment to look at yourself and know <laughs> that you were just being a smug asshole. Oh, so you have an extra layer of complication. Oh, yeah. Like... <laughs> I, I dealt with explicit racism against the people in this movie that was itself being wielded with me as the in-group. With me as like, oh yes, look at these stupid people wanting this stupid movie about their stupid fantasy of Pocahontas. Which is hilarious, because this movie wasn't made for Native Americans. This movie was made for suburban white girls. And that's another point we can get to later. And uh, I'm assuming your own double take on this one is going to be... Ah, uh, there's nothing about this movie that's new to me. I know it's inside <laughs> out. I've seen this a billion times. You watched it only like a couple of years ago. Like, I remember you you had a, like... I think so. Just had a hankering to watch it one night. Yeah. With our very legitimate and legal VHS tape, which can definitely connect to our <laughs> definitely legal TV. I can tell you the names of the two comedy sidekick characters. <laughs> uh, one of whom is voiced by Billy Connolly. Billy Connolly. And I don't think their names are ever mentioned in the movie. No. So, yeah, that that's the kind of level that I'm on with this. That was, in fact, an issue with Lon. He didn't get paid the same rate because his name is never mentioned. Oof. <laughs> but Billy Connolly was a different type of talent, so he did get the higher pay rate. Anyway! Yeah, somebody in that duo had the role of, you make Billy Connolly look better. The next segment would be the Yikes store. And <sighs> I think when it comes to this movie... We need to do what we did with Aladdin, which is to say, there is a problem that is the water that this fish swims in. And sitting here and picking through it one by one to go, well, this is colonialist and this is colonialist is not helpful. <clears throat> and now we have the yikes door! <laughs> uh, yes, that's a, that's a good description. I mean, I, we shouldn't not talk about it at all, yeah. but I mean, in... You know what? It's it's very insightful, because that is nothing so much as the description of what the real problem with this movie is. It's doing a lot of stuff right, especially for when it was made. Like, this was clearly trying to be very respectful. Mm. They sold this super hard as, as an American fairy tale and, like, a, a, a Disney embracing of native people's history. And the storytelling is definitely more nuanced than than what we had on this topic in the past. Yeah. Uh, like, we we see the Native Americans in this movie living complete lives and being real people and having their own shit going on. In the you, you can make the case that, like, they don't have a lot going on, but the thing is, it's a Disney fable. Like, Lemure didn't have a shitload going on in his life. Well, what's the first thing we learn about them when we hear them? Well, aside from their song. Because we get a song from the, the settlers, and then we get a song from the natives. Yep. And then people start talking. Uh, and what's the first thing we learn about the village? They just had a fight. They just had a fight with another nation. And this is where one of those little notes of yikes comes up. Because racists love to point out, look, the Native Americans had war with one another. They were just as bad as colonialists. <laughs> and they're like, oh, shut the fuck up. And of course they fucking did. They're humans. That doesn't... It's not on par with God, with colonialism. It's not on par with fucking genocide. Yeah, and and also the, in the context of war between tribal groups, it's a very different characterization. Like 
war is not a single universal thing that has always looked exactly the same way throughout our history. Mm. And there have definitely been points, and I do not say this as an expert in how the Powhatan specifically waged war. No idea. In fact, I don't know if the the tribe they mention in that opening exists at all, or if they are a fictionalized, Mm. uh, you know, squouty Scarabia. Yeah, because we didn't want to just we didn't want to pick any particular country in the Middle East. It's it's Lataria, Karat, Karat. Yeah, yeah. the The issue here is that tribal warfare in many tribal societies, and I, like, even just calling it tribal gives an implication, but it's it's not like I really do just mean like these are small tribal groups of related families. Um, but tribal warfare would often be. We're sending 20 guys, and they're sending 20 guys, and they're standing in a field, and they are going to fight and try and kill each other, and then the winner is determined by just the bigger number. And that's okay. I have no idea what we're dealing with, but yeah. ultimately what we're talking about is a fight between two roughly equal peoples with roughly equal claims to what they're fighting over. Yeah. As opposed to, God said I am allowed to come here and murder all of you and take all your shit. And when I say all of you, I mean all. Yeah, and that's that. That is the uh, that is one of the things about this movie that you just kind of keep tripping up over. Of like, there are there are so many interesting historical things in this movie, and the original historical story of Pocahontas has some super interesting stuff in it, and uh, John Smith has some super interesting stuff in it. Meh. But that's not this story, and that's a Hamlet hang gliders thing, right? No, this is a story where, say, Pocahontas and John Smith are almost the same age. Yeah. Just just for a fucking start, this is a story where they fall in love. Boy, that's a different thing. Yeah. The records this is based on are told by John Smith himself, and he had many reasons to play up his own heroism and efficacy in his... Legitimately interesting, but definitely not Disney movie life. And some of these elements were actually not for his benefit. One of the things that he boasted about Pocahontas was in a letter to Queen Anne, who was about to meet Pocahontas. So he basically sent a royal of Denmark a note saying, oh yeah, you need to respect this young lady because she's so cool and so important, and I'm going to shed some of my ridiculous colonizer glory onto her so that you treat her well. And whether or not that worked or should have worked or any of that is not counting the fact that, like, there were lots of reasons for people to lie. It's definitely gross. Yeah. But, I mean, there's nothing about the real version of this that isn't gross. Yeah. Um, as far as, like, small specific things under the Ike's door that isn't just, like, the giant blaring red sign, John Smith is so pushy and handsy. I... He's, he's definitely more pushy than I remember. I like him less than I ever did. And that's not helped by knowing that he's voiced by Mel Gibson. Yeah. Um, Even though I know Mel Gibson much better from this than from anything else he ever did. Yeah. I mean, you know, any other role he ever played, let's say that. Yeah. And the the nature of... Pocahontas is hot, all right? It, this is not me being a weirdo. This is me noticing something that we know the animators did very intentionally. <laughs> no, look. Every Disney girl is designed to be wicked hot by some standard. Yeah. In her case, they did make her older than they normally do. Like, Pocahontas has a very tangible adultness to her, even if it's not, you know, even if she's meant to be, like, sitting at the same age as Ariel and everyone. I believe she's intended to be 18, Hmm. but she looks more than a couple of years older than our usual Disney princess. And this is another thing I was going to bring up, because part of what I love about this is that she's fucking gorgeous, mm-hmm. and she's much more athletic 
and her movements are more interesting. Like when she's uh, stalking after John Smith, uh, she's physically adept in a way which Disney princesses don't get to be. And that's super cool, except the fact that the only reason she is that way is because she's not white. Yeah. And that's icky. Like, it's it's so upsetting that they did something so different and such an improvement on what they normally did for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. It's really sad. If you look at the conventional Renaissance princess, there is a particular, and this is like principles of animation shit here. So yeah, great time to talk about it on a podcast. But- uh, there is uh, the whole idea of momentum and follow through when it comes to a character moving. And if you watch almost every single other Disney princess of this era, when they stop moving, there is a bob to the way they move. Sometimes it's their hair. Ariel is the most for this because they use oh, the fact that she's underwater. Yeah. yeah, they use the fact that she's underwater to make all of her movements have that kind of gentle follow through. But even Jasmine does it. Like when Jasmine turns and goes, oh, hello, doctor. Her hair does this very gentle bobbing left and right when she does it pocahontas doesn't have that pocahontas movement comes across as like almost panther-like almost almost stalking and it's so much more purposeful this is not to say that there is no follow-through oh yes yes if anything her hair completes the follow-through and then just keeps moving because she's almost never completely still yeah this is a way in which her animation describes her character really beautifully the only time she's totally still is when she's at her, like, lowest point. Mm-hmm. Uh, which also is uh, a, a direct intentional effect of uh, the wind in this movie is not a character. But, uh, well, I mean, some people think it's literally the spirit of her mother because everything has to be magical. I prefer to think of it as more of a metaphor. <laughs> um, but, like, this is... The movement is things going well and things proceeding, and the fact that she's still, when she's at her lowest point, is also the fact that the wind is gone at that point. And yeah, like, it's really good visual storytelling all the way through this movie. And, like, that's that's pretty much all I have for, like, specific out-of-the-big-thing Yikes door moments. I mean, this was about blue aliens with magic hair. In a, in a lot of ways, this would really this really serves as a product-of-its-time thing, because this movie is extremely liberal progressive of 1995 white people's vision of, hey, we want to get you to think about the Native Americans. And, like, yeah, good good baby step, (laughs) but this is not the follow-through, and this is a movie made with millions and millions of dollars by one of the biggest companies in the world, so you don't get to make baby steps. You can feel very acutely that this was positioned at the point where people had gotten past, like, okay, the, the initial perspective of white person good, not white person bad, to the the pivot to understanding of like, oh no, we fucked these people. That was very bad. To the point where they're seen as innocent. Yeah. As not full people, because they're too good. And you can very much feel that this movie came as the next step in that chain where it's like, okay, no, 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 let's get some nuance into our understanding of this, okay? Let's, let's understand that there are full and entire people on both sides. But as is descriptive of this era, they also went way too far into that both sides idea of like, just, you know, like if we, if we could just have stopped the one or two bad actors involved in this, everything would have been fine. There is a difficulty ever addressing the Native American genocides and the crimes of colonialism because 
the scope of the problem is more vast than almost anyone can accurately hold in their head. It is literally a system has come to your country, and every individual person in that system is a worker ant in in service of that system. And it doesn't matter how good or bad any one individual behaving in that is, the system is still here as this specter that will now digest your nation. (laughs) It is literally Lovecraftian in its horror. And how do you talk about that? How do you make that digestible for seven-year-olds? It is... It is beyond me to know how to start talking about this. Yeah. And to then look at Pocahontas and go, well, this doesn't live up to the standards of what I'd expect. What would I expect? What what in the world would look like it accurately depicted this in (laughs) any kind of way that let America exist? In what world does Disney come out with a strong stance against the founding of America and also capitalism in general? Yeah, it's... it's... (laughs) Good luck with that. So... I say that I say these things and I close the Yikes door not to permit this thing freedom from further criticism, but rather to simply acknowledge that this whole movie, and indeed everything we do, lives behind the Yikes door. There is no apology big enough for the biggest of crimes, and we have to try and find ways to make good while we can, part of which is acknowledging that it happened and that we were part of it. <sighs> Sorry. Yep. No, that, I mean, this is the journey we needed to take. I feel like today we ceremoniously do not close the Yikes store. We merely step away from it. Yeah. And, don't get me wrong, I've got some of my own people's dirt to throw oh, around sure, at the sure. Grand Thesis. We're, we're gonna have some fun there. But, uh, you know, that, 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 that's white on white violence. And they never talk about that in the news. What is it about the animation and making of this movie? Oh, cast and crew, there are so many voices in this worth talking about. Yeah! Um, for starters, you might be astonished to know that this movie is not totally fucking whitewashed. Yes! Our main character actually has a First Nations person person doing her voice. In fact, every every Native American character has a Native actor. Uh, And at the risk of dipping a toe back into the Yikes store, uh, it is particularly interesting that they picked Russell Means as the voice of the chief. Yeah, who? Who, uh, let's say was not a politically neutral person now or when this movie was made, uh, which, you know, comes across as a fucking statement. But also from behind the scenes talk, I happen to know that they almost gave the role to Robin Williams, so fuck them still just a little bit. Yeah, yeah, there's a fair bit... (laughs) (laughs) You stupid assholes. Here's one of the worst things about digging into the voice acting talent, where you're like, oh, hang on, like, so, so Pocahontas is Irene Bedard, uh, Gordon Tatusis was Kikata, uh, Russell Means was Chief Powhatan, uh, Michelle St. John as Nakoma, and James Appelbart Fall as Kakum. And, like, of all those actors, you might be able to go, ah, well, some of them are Metis and some of them are Cree, and they're very far from the Powhatan. It's like, yeah, we killed most of the Powhatan. That's on us. We, we made the casting decision difficult, okay? <laughs> but the other thing is, you find out that this was a stunt. Like, after they had decided not to use Robin Williams, like, oh, what if all of the Native American characters are voiced by Native actors? Oh, God, what if it was that? <laughs> you, you fucking bricks! <laughs> oh, Lord. Anyway, I feel like it might have been a bluff, because I don't think Robin Williams was coming back for another Disney movie after what happened with Aladdin. Like, he was real mad. Yeah. I guess they did eventually get him back for an Aladdin sequel, like, 10, 12 years later. But I think at this stage he was still pretty cross. Mm-hmm. 
When you talk about the settler voice actors, we have, um, we, we, honestly, we have some really fucking interesting shit here. We have racist McDickhole. <laughs> we have Mel Gibson, who, look, I can't say Mel Gibson is directly worse than John Smith, but let's say that there are ways in which the two people are a lot closer than, uh, than you'd expect with literally 400 years of difference. Mel, Mel Gibson <laughs> is close to my people's nonsense in that he's from a small fundamentalist Christian cult. Uh, uh, no, you say this is is a Catholic rather than Anglican. Yeah, oh, he's oh he's Catholic, but don't get me don't get me wrong. He's not quite as Catholic as you think because he's so Catholic they think that the Pope is um a false Pope. So like they're out. I think that's a tradition in Catholicism, <laughs> isn't it? We were out there. They're out there too. Like we 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 ironically we would hate each other. I mean, to be fair, your cult thought the Pope was a false Pope as well. It's just oh yeah, that didn't make him different from any of the other popes. Oh no, he was he was um he was the whore of Babylon. But that's a story for another podcast. I can already sense I'm teetering way too far over this yikes pit. That said, we also have David Ogden Steers playing Ratcliffe and Ratcliffe's assistant Wiggins. Wiggins, I do. Love his work in this. He's such a fucking ham in this. David Steers is so good, and like, if you want, he he was so good at making a preposterous bastard. He was just ate the scenery, just um, and, and condescending and petty and sneeringly powerful in the way of a of a principal who knows he's only in charge of you until three fifteen. Like, just the worst kind of prick. I feel like we saw a lot of uh, what made him enjoyable in MASH mm. here in that for most part, he was a stuffed shirt douchebag who knew he wasn't as good as the people around him and was terrified of everyone else finding out. But then you get that little window of like being genuinely good at manipulating someone. Ratcliffe is if David Steers had played Frank Burns. And that, oh my god, he is! That that there—that's just there for us, the the true <laughs> mash nerds of our generation. But like, I'm right, aren't I? Wow! Yeah, absolutely, perfect. Love yeah. It. The we also had John Cassier as Miko. I thought that would have been Frank Welker, but it wasn't. Not Frank Welker, but you know who is Jim Cummings? Huh? No, Flit. Flit is Frank Welker. Yeah, Flit. Sorry, Jim Cummings. Jim Cummings is a bunch of other stuff in this as well. Yep. Um, he's the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jim Cummings is also the singing voice of both Pahatan and Kakata, which, yeah, you know, figures. look, yeah. singing is a different discipline. I understand this stuff is hard. I think Mel Gibson might be the only, yeah. oh, and David Ogden-Steers, of course, might be the yep. only people in this to do their own singing, because mm-hmm. Pocahontas also is yeah. uh, Judy Kuhn? Yep. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to Irene Bedard, who was her uh, voice actor. Though, I have one extra super, like, holy crap, that's kind of weird, uh, voice in all this. Do you know Grandmother Willow's voice actress? Uh, I did. I have forgotten. I want to say it's Judy Dench. No, it's a lady by the name of Linda Hunt. Damn it. Linda Hunt, who has the weird honor of being the first person to win an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for a role that wasn't her gender. Huh. She played a dude in an early Mel Gibson movie and did a really great job of it. Uh, what I also am scrolling past wow, very quickly is that she was a white lady playing a Asian 
dude. But we're moving on. That's not neat. Uh, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, I hate <laughs> everything about that. Okay. Really, I thought she was another famous voice. I wanted to, like, she well, was Dancho or Angela Lansbury or someone <laughs> of that ilk, because I swear I remember her being famous at the time. I mean, she that was- just be a little memory hole. Well, also, like, she was famous at the time. She just won a freaking Oscar. Yeah, but I clearly have um, never heard of her. <laughs> But also, she's she's a little old lady-looking person who isn't Miss Lanningham. So, like, she's almost all of Most those. Most of them aren't. Um, and also is, uh, uh, you know, one of the queer elders. She she's married. Oh. She's been married to a lady since 2003. And you might go, that wasn't legal until, like, 2010. Like, <laughs> yep. Anyway. Yeah, it turns out wealthy lesbians had some options for getting around that. Mm-hmm. That uh, non-wealthy lesbians didn't. We're not done yet. You forgot baby Christian Bale. Mm, yes. Who... I don't actually know how old he was when he did this. He was like 22. In my mind, he looks exactly like Thomas, which is hilarious. Yeah, he's like 10 years older than us. And there you go. I'm so bummed out. They, I like, I didn't know he wasn't English at the time. I'm mm. so annoyed now that they didn't just let him use Welsh. What, yeah. you think there wouldn't have been any fucking Welsh people on these boats? Jesus Christ, if they could have made everyone on that boat Welsh, they would have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, the... the... <laughs> The Welsh were absolutely all over the the sea at that point. But yeah. I can't help but notice that we've got a couple of Scots. Yes, we do. And to be fair, that was also very common. <laughs> England at this point was treating the uh Yeah, oh yeah. The, the the rest of the United Kingdom as piggy banks for human labor. If you were one of the satellite British, you were you were definitely ripe for the uh what's the word? Press ganging. <laughs> <laughs> it's a word for when you transport someone to an- <laughs> Mashing oh, this- on the red button. <laughs> this wasn't meant to be an Australia joke. <laughs> Commuting. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> I got so much funnier than I- it was meant to be. I'm just seeing, just want you to imagine a big red button on the desktop <laughs> labelled abort as I'm moving my hand slowly towards Record it. Record for training purposes. <laughs> <clears throat> yes. Uh, the, the satellite British peoples were ripe for, let's say, commuting positions. Yeah. But that's the voice talent. Do you know that much about the animation? I do believe Glenn Keane was a major factor again, but that's the only Mm -hmm. uh, particular name I can bring to mind. Because we've sort of left the era of fucking superstar animators at this point. Like, we're not going to get another Milt Carl, if only because there's now just dozens and dozens of these fucking people working on these movies, right? Every character has their entire own animation team at this point. Yeah, and each character has a director. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they have a, a supervising uh, animator. Yeah. Yes, good point. They're not technically a director. That would involve a different pay scale. Because everything here is being filtered through actors. Guilds. Good God. Um, so we have Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz on the music. <sighs> They'll come up again. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Accidentally amazing. No, I mean, oh. What are they fucking talking about accidentally amazing? No, it's very intentionally amazing. Alan Menken <laughs> is really good at his job. I love that. Christ. They definitely, uh, for me, those two characterize my favorite era of Disney musicals uh, and I don't think that ever changes mm-hmm. like even the modern ones that have gone back to being musicals they don't hit the same notes for me as it were now when it comes to the design of Pocahontas herself 
We have illustrations from the 16th century. They aren't very good. <laughs> I mean, they're mostly of a child. No, we have some illustrations. Oh, of no, the adult. portraits from when she went to England. Yeah. But that's not, I mean, how can you tell what the person under that looked like? Because exactly. the portraits we have of her from then, she's fucking done up like a white person with a stupid wig and everything. She looks <sighs> atrocious. So Glenn Keane claims that Pocahontas is modelled on two of the consultants on the movie. Really? Who are descended from Pocahontas. Oh, that's not what I heard. I heard she was based on various, mostly Asian, uh, models and celebrities. The two the two consultants were Shirley Little Dove Custler McGowan and Debbie White Dove. And I'm just putting their names out here because, like, I think, I think you know, we're a little too, I'm a little too prone to letting names float by, especially names I couldn't easily pronounce. Um... Yeah, like Debbie. Yeah, it, it was Debbie. Oh, sorry. See, my That's pronunciation is terrible. <laughs> but Glenn Keane, in order to make them even more attractive, quote, added an Asian element, end quote, because he wanted to make her, quote, the most idealized woman possible. Yeah, well, I mean. Just gonna set that down, push it to the other end of the table, and leave it there. I'm just super uncomfortable because, like, yeah. he's right, but yeah. why did you have to be a fucking creep about it? He was an adult creating media reflecting people he was talking to. You were a child responding to media that was saying, hey, find this attractive, right? <laughs> you are not on the same level here. He's being creepy. You're doing what was being expected. I did, when we came into this, describe uh, Pocahontas as my original life or wife yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still true. I, uh, there's, she's a, like exactly 50% of, of my God, I want to be in love with you. And, uh, goodness me, you are goals all over. And like, once again, that would be fine if not for the fact that obviously a character of a racial extraction made explicitly for people not of that racial extraction. Yeah. Now I have one last note while we're here in the making and it is where a villain appears. About animation resources being shuttled around through Disney, right? So. Not that they could have done a lot to take this down. Do you remember Katzenberg? Of course I remember Katzenberg. So he apparently roped in all of the feature animation staff and told them all, hey, just so you know, The Lion King is a bit of an experimental movie. It's probably not going to succeed. But you know what will succeed? Our next movie after it, Pocahontas. So all of the best animators from The Lion King should come and work on Pocahontas. Because Katzenberg wanted the Oscar that Beauty and the Beast didn't get. Yeah, I see. This whole movie, from his perspective, was an exercise in literal Oscar bait. Yeah, I mean, that the Americana of it definitely speaks to that. Mm -hmm. And that's how they marketed this as well. Yeah. They were real hard on for this idea. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you know, what is it if not a self-congratulatory liberalism will fix racism kind of uh, Hollywood bullshit. And with the bonus extra side dish of, look again, it's Katzenberg being wrong about everything. Yeah, ding hole. <laughs> I do, however, have a bit of a grand thesis, even though, like, you've seen the shape of it so far. <laughs> Right, uh, which I guess is is what we're at now. We we rocketed through this one. What I want to talk about with the grand thesis of this movie is the way, and again, this is this is veering into that Hamlet and Hanglider's thing. It presents Pocahontas's vision of her world as spiritual. It doesn't necessarily use the word spirit or ghost, though they have like a literal medicine man drifting up ghosts out of the uh, out of the smoke. 
and whatnot. Like, it is explicitly a pro-spiritual kind of vision. And the colonists are deemed spiritually inert. Like, they aren't invoking God or Christ or or any of the things that we know they did. No, there's a very distinct omission of, of any kind of Christian influence in this extremely Christian expedition. Yeah, and with that, with, with that ironically, whitewashing of the, uh, uh, of the colonists' vision of what the world was like and the world that they were entitled to, you do wind up flattening it down to it's one bad dude with one bad idea who is here for money and everyone else who's here is just kind of okay. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I said it before and I'll say it again. The villain is only motivated by money is a bullshit non-critique and people should stop using it. The greatest villains of our time are motivated only by money. Oh, yeah. Jeff Bezos. Exactly. That's... <laughs> got it in one! <laughs> no. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that you're allowed to uh, uh, overlook a, a critical component of colonialism. And in many ways, the critical component that made it persist beyond uh, all reason that you could apply to just just wanting land and wealth. Mm-hmm. Like, there are multiple forces at work here, and one of them goes without taking any of the blame. Yeah. And that's one of these ways that we privilege Christianity in all of our conversations about this stuff. It is, it is seen as inappropriate to point out that it was articles of faith that helped to drive colonialism. It is seen as inappropriate to point out that religious settlers were getting involved in fights with these people over faith. In the mm. real historical instance, when John Smith did go there, um, one of the details that was like lost at first was the chief of the Powhatan who met with them was trying to set up John Smith as a puppet leader for him. Like He was ah. trying to say, hey, we have a city area over here that you can run. You and your settlers could be in charge of this space if you just accede to me. And- that almost was how it worked out, but then a religious um, uh, problem broke out with the settlers, and th- you should go check out what happened to the real John Ratcliffe listener to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> content warning, torture. <laughs> yeah, that's not maybe. Point is that this is treating the white default American as like a very neutral presence, and the people who aren't like and, and like the the character of America in this is kind of blameless from all sides. Well, I mean, this movie very much pitches the idea of America as uh, like the okay. Looking at this movie, America now consists of the people who were here to begin with and the white settlers who weren't the bad guys. Yeah, because they weren't even American yet, right? They're very English. They put English flags all over everything. It's featured quite a few times. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, what you're left with at the end is like, oh, these are these are the people that made actual America. Now it's America. Look at that. Yeah, it, and like that's gross. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, it's it's interesting and it's sad and it's frustrating. And I I, I have nothing more to add beyond the fact that John Smith's vision of adventure and exploration still uses the phrase conquer and tame when talking about land. Well, uh, they do set up very much that he has to learn, mm. which is, you know, the movie follows through on that. I can't fault it on that front. I do have something else to add, though, because as you mentioned, Pocahontas' vision of of life and the world and how you respect what's around you is 
very much couched in spiritual terms that would be at odds with the Christianity that is never spoken by the white characters, but is, like, it's what they were fucking there for. But you've read about this. You already know what happened to the real Pocahontas and why she became the darling of the new world. Yeah. And the icon of Virginia and all that bullshit. Because she became a good Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so, like you said, this is alternate universe, idealized fanfiction of America. Boy, is it. Which, to be fair, most stories about America are, Absolutely. of which I have been told there are only three. Oh, well, so this is the second one. <laughs> the third one is Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> My grand thesis on this movie is, is probably going to get me some bullshit, because to me, this has always been, people gave Beauty and the Beast a lot of credit for, for Disney doing some feminist shit, but to me, that's what this movie is. <laughs> like, yeah. This is a princess with more agency than just about anyone we've ever seen. She actually has meaningful, complex choices in her life rather than a comedy buffoon uh, trying to force her into a relationship. Like, this was this was gonna have your classic Disney setup of I order you to marry this guy and you, you don't want to. But they, this got kiboshed by the, the consultants who were like, that's not how we fucking do things. We don't order our daughters to marry some douche. Yeah. We don't, we don't do arranged marriages. Why would you do that? That's weird. Um, and because of that, we have someone with just a, a much more mature, uh, concept. And that really follows through with the entire movie. You know, up to and including the point where they don't get a happily ever after. Like, this is, this is the movie that everyone's like, no, not that one. That's the embarrassing one. But this is the one where they worked out the no three day relationships don't pan out into beautiful marriages that last forever. Yeah. Maybe they end with you growing up and realizing that you do, in fact, have to take your place among the people you're supposed to be a leader of. And the scene at the end, in particular, where she leads her people in doing an act is like, you've never seen a Disney princess do anything like that. She exists in a community. It's it's really interesting. <laughs> And she also, I mean, you know, her entire relationship with John Smith is deeply problematic in the sense of, like, not just it's it's a fairy tale washing of actual colonial narratives, um, but also in the fact that she basically has to fix him. You know the way in which I pointed out that The Lion King is not a movie about Africa? It's about British royalty. <laughs> yeah. Same thing here. This movie is about 90s settler families. It's about you, middle uh, middle class white girl. Not you specifically, Fox. Not pointing at you, but it's about <laughs> no. But it might as well be. It's it's for all of us who owned a Dreamcatcher and felt like that made us just a bit more spiritual. But but also there is there is a really interesting, like much deeper version of an argument that happened in a lot of '90s movies of a dad going, "Yes, you should. No, I won't." And that particular tension. Because in in the narrative that Pocahontas examines, it's that her dad is not wrong but he is not correct and by the end of the movie she's like i am also not wrong but i am not correct that there is there is a vision in, a, in that very neoliberal way of you are you are free to make certain choices within the within the superstructure and she was and her dad is like well i think you only have these choices and she's like ah but i have these other choices they're still within the same structure it's still the same overall like you wind up in more or less where you were going to be anyway, vision of a destined society, structurally. 
Well, I mean, that's how people have to live, Talon. Yeah. To be safe, we lose our chance of ever knowing what's around the riverbed. <laughs> exactly. And be- because of that, this movie is going to have huge resonance for everyone who... <laughs> this, <laughs> this isn't meant to sound like it's scornful. But for every mid-90s teenager who had arguments with their parents, like it's going to resonate loud and deep on a way that you might not even realize it's doing for you. And it's it's frustrating that the clothes that this particular really good teenage parent-child, sorry, teenage-child-parent relationship narrative is, happens to be one of the great historical crimes. And I also have a lot of respect for how she deals with him, for the most part. Like They seem to like each other! Have you- did you notice that in that movie they don't get a fucking duet love song classic Disney romance number? They get a number where she's like, you know nothing, John Smith, and just fucking schools him. Yeah. And the animation all through that is her leading him, and him just kind of stumbling along behind. It- it's really refreshing compared to existing Disney. If this movie was about something else, it would be one of the best <laughs> Disney movies. Like I said at the top end, if only this movie had been about blue aliens. Yeah, because then... like we'd still be able to go, hey man, that's really <laughs> colonialist. That's like ripping off a whole bunch of... Like, yes, but it's not actually using the actual historical names. Not actually claiming to be a record of real people. No. Yeah. I man, I still love it, but I have to understand all of its flaws. <laughs> it's a rough road. I have a bunch of other notes here in my grand thesis from actual native critics. And indeed, some of Russell Means' own writing. And I'm not just going to read the Wikipedia article to you. <laughs> Boy, but- speaking of complicated people, Ooh, yeah, yeah, Russell okay. Means has quite the Wikipedia article himself. Yeah, like, go into this knowing full well you are dealing with humans who have lives and there are complicated relationships on all fronts on this stuff. Yeah, Especially... People from oppressed states often behave in ways that are made more complicated by the stresses of the oppression. That's a fundamental aspect of, of humanity is the more depre- uh, the more desperation you you uh, manage to crush a person under, the worse they behave, even if they're not a particularly badly inclined person in the first place. So with that said, shall we move on to a very brief jaunt through whatever land? Yeah, I think it's about that time. I love that Fox has basically had no cards for this whole thing. Like, this is just Fox. <laughs> this is this is in her bones. I get lost in this movie very quickly. <laughs> this is another one that that uh, had a shelf cleared out and dedicated to it on my bookshelf. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> this is God. In fact, this this alone is a movie that I own the promotional soft drink cup and popcorn bucket for because not only did I see it in a movie. I managed to convince my parents to let me buy the movie Popcorn. Oh, wow. Because it had the character bucket. Never you again. A, you had a character bucket. I'm so proud of you. It's the only one I ever got. You Can't Step in the Same River Twice is the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. It's from about 3000 BC. Oh, oh, that's kind of a relief because, like, I, I always expected that, you know, the fucking, uh... Twee painted on shabby chic planks to hang in your family room. Yeah. Decoration with that on it directly came from this movie. I'm so glad to know it's not just this. It's just, it is a little frustrating to have 
yes, the Native American will speak with universal old wisdom kind of thing. Like, you know, we treat Native American characters like they are fortune cookie dispensers. We do, which is why it was nice to get a variety in this movie. <laughs> Porkacom. <laughs> Porkacom. Porkacoma. Yeah, Nakoma's such, such a good friend. I really like her. She's such a sincere character who does the best she can in this movie, but she is not the protagonist. And she is going to make every mistake you could make. And it's so sad. And I really like how just unabashedly thirsty she is. <laughs> he's a hottie, right? Yeah. Like, damn, he's a lookout. Not not my type, especially. He's got that really flinty eyes. I'm not that wild about guys who look like that. But, like, you're... Boo-hoo! <laughs> he could, he do, could get it. I do like Hawkers on everybody, yeah. really. I believe, That's a me thing somehow. I believe it's known as an aquiline nose as well. Yeah, but Laquiline literally means like an eagle, so. <laughs> oh, you never knew this? You're going to have interesting realizations in my D&D game in a month's time. So, the canoe ride is dance. Yeah, definitely. Because the the meme is, you talk until you can't help but sing, you sing but t- till you can't help but dance. She sings, gets into a canoe, and dances down the river. Sure does. That's also what uh, the all the motion that she goes through with Smith is taking the place of as well. Like, we may be running and rolling around and swimming, but what we're really doing is dancing, yeah. and everyone understands this. <laughs> also, did you just put the look on his face when she flips him in that sunflower field? <laughs> like, I, you're given to focus on her because she's singing at that moment, but if you glance at him instead, he's like, hey. <laughs> he's so into it. <laughs> I would be. Well, no, that's a lie. I don't like being talked. Next topic... Miko and Flit almost spoke. <laughs> they, yeah, yeah, they were going to be talky characters. And they were going to have a buddy. A third one. Oh, yes, there was a... Oh, God, what was it? Was it a porcupine? <laughs> they were almost joined by Redfeather, a smart-talking turkey who was convinced he was hilarious. He was going to be voiced by John Candy, who died in 1994. This led to them reconsidering the animals and deciding, hey, what if they pantomime instead? And then they went, it's really hard for a turkey to pantomime. So they just cut Red Feather. I feel like that's good because there's already, there's definitely enough sidekicks in this movie. Like everybody has a sidekick. And, you know, it's not bad. They use them as like a microcosm of what's playing out uh, around them. And like, you know, if you're six, maybe that's easier for you to grasp than what's actually going on with the humans. Um, But also just this movie would have been really bad if you'd had John Candy style jokes in it. I don't Mm. think that would have worked. Like, mm. this movie is not a laughing out loud movie. There's some funny bits, but none of it is, like, trying to make you laugh exactly. It's just sort of like, eh. Yeah. Um, you've, you've very much outpaced my whatever land, so I should probably take a go, hey? <laughs> <laughs> well, only because I started the very front, the very beginning of the movie. You, you, you know when Thomas goes overboard? Mm-hmm. And you get that long shot of Smith swimming out to save him? Yeah. And he just stays there in the ocean, like, shoulders above the water. Not even bobbing up and down <laughs> in this sea so stormy they're barely managing to get the ship through it. And yet he'll just happily float, but can't swim himself for some reason. I don't know, it just always really pisses me off. It's because we're Welsh, we're made of wood. <laughs> I thought you were made of fish, man. Look, I don't ask you where your ancestry eventually leads. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Is that too real yet? <laughs> we're beginning to look a lot like fishmen. Uh, Pocahontas wasn't her real name. It was a nickname. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, her real name was Motoka, um, and her nickname kind of means little trouble. Yeah, little mischief is what it got translated yeah. as. That's pretty cool, honestly. 
It is. It's less cool when she's like 18 or whatever, but, you know, still kind of. Pet name stick. Give you some sass. Mm. Well, and I mean, it is a coming of age movie for her as well, so it's fine. Yeah. Just because she looks like a grown ass adult who's also fucking gorgeous. <laughs> Asian fitness model. <laughs> It's very frustrating that they only started making Disney girls look like adults once they started making Disney girls of color. Just saying. Yeah. Uh, very beginning. You can tell how quickly I was distracted by the movie because my only other whatever and note is right at the beginning when you have this disaster and just Smith is commanding everything. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck are you, hey? Does this ship have an actual captain? I presume it does because it's not Ratcliffe. I shrug. Because <laughs> he might actually be a captain. I think they might call him captain. He's not a sea captain, though. He shouldn't be. He's definitely, like, a military captain at best. Governors... Uh, there's, there's a complicated thing when it comes to the British navalry on authority of transporting people. And I, like, I know... I know, for example, uh, it was a big deal that the Australian governors were captains of the ships when they came out here. Uh, this is also why several of them tried to run the colony oh, like a ship. Yes, and, and afterwards, yes. And why almost all of them went fucking packing quick. Um, but uh, enough of our colonialism. <laughs> sure enough, sure enough. Speaking of Australia, did you uh, notice all the times that uh, Mel Gibson's English? Oh, yeah. Just, just like, you know, he's he's doing it convincingly for the most part, and then occasionally he's just like, Oi! Yeah. You're like, oh, I see you. <laughs> You're from New York. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, um, he does hit a couple of R's in a way that's very American. As well. Yeah, like, that's not British or Australian. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's almost a really good example of the fantasy accent where it's like, it's clearly not from anywhere, but it's inconsistent enough. That it's like, oh no, this is just a voice actor fucking up. It's true. And I will say in general, it's very nice to hear a bunch of non-American accents. Yeah. Um, in, in a Disney movie and a bunch of, of uh, British accents that are actually supposed to be from Britain. Because last time I heard a bunch of British accents in a Disney movie, they were all meant to be Australian. Let Tom say Yakida. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly a good whatever land note, but there it is. <laughs> no, it's fine. I respect it. Um, also, I did appreciate just how often Ratcliffe was diegetically incorrect. Oh, yeah, he's full of shit. Like, I, I knew that, like, oh, he's the stupid, bumbling, evil one, but, like, there are lots of points where it's, like, Ratcliffe going, thing A, hard cut, thing B is true. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think they did a lot of, you remember I said, like, it's got a lot of, of funny bits in it, but they're not, like, laugh out loud funny bits. It's stuff like that. It's, like, people regularly make an observation and are immediately proven wrong, mm -hmm. but not in a way that they notice, just in a way that gives us a private sort of, eh, I saw that. Since we're talking about sidekicks, I just want to add that I fucking love that raccoon. Miko is great. He's my boy! <laughs> Again, there's so much in this movie, individually, shorn of a greater context, to fucking love. And Miko is so good! <laughs> I know some people find the, the animal sidekicks very, like, Disney got to shove a cute animal sidekick in there. Oh, but I'm sorry, what's wrong with you? Don't you like fun? <laughs> yeah, I like fat little gremlins who steal your stuff, eat all your biscuits, and then ask for more. Uh, <laughs> Raccoon's good. I love and, it. And also, stealing the compass is a plot point. A stupid plot point. We're not going to talk about how stupid the compass <laughs> what is. What was going on with the magnetic poles in Virginia <laughs> 1607, man? That, that's when it gets really hard to claim, like, oh no, it's not a spiritual movie. <laughs> Fuck you! Well, here's the thing, though. There's a lot of spiritual bullshit-looking stuff that goes on in that movie that's like, yeah, well, this is very obviously magical. 
But it's only normal shit that happens in Disney movies, though. Like, yeah. you know, oh, animals love her. And I've seen people interpret this as, like, she's supposed to be, like, a shaman character. And that's why she can do all this stuff and why she has magical, you know, drifting uh, uh, flower petals and shit. But there's just stuff that happens in Disney movies. It's not her being magic. I can see those as both perfectly valid interpretations. Okay, but either all Disney princesses are magical or none are, is what I'm saying. Well, I'm going to guess the mermaid isn't exactly 100% natural. They're probably all magical, yes. The thing is, it's not a criticism to be leveled against her in particular. And and also, I don't even see how that's like a criticism of the movie or anything like it. It's like, you can either interpret this character as being literally mystical, or just passively part of a mystical narrative, right? If I may? It, well, it's called up as as a mystical native. Uh, uh, yeah, trope. fair enough. Like fair people enough. are like, oh, she has like magical shaman powers because she's a Native American. Like, I don't think that's what's going on here. I can see ways that that is both there and not there. Like, that's definitely going to depend upon your individual interpretation. But I don't think that anyone saying no, she's not a mystic. It's just the genre is wrong. I also prefer to believe that she's just a fucking killer athlete. Like, I don't think she needed magic to jump that. You fucking gap in the cliff. I think she's just, you know, six foot one and has thighs of steel. Because <laughs> that's what we've got from the rest of this movie. Now, as we stem our way out of the harbor of whatever land, we must now confront the America that is and the dread specter of capitalism. Oh, that's right. Now, we aren't doing a thing where you try and guess a number. Aren't we? Just, just a general frame. <laughs> How many times more or less? Like, what, what kind of success rate are we looking at here? <laughs> Um, we are still in the stage of budgets balloon. Yep. Uh, I'm trying to remember what our figure for last time was. 45 million. 45 Okay. Now, I'm pretty sure Hunchback is the first one to break 100 million. So I'm going to say Pocahontas goes in the middle, on the high end. Maybe they got like eight. No, 55 million. Only 55? Wow. Really? It's a bargain. At these rates, how could you afford not to buy a Pocahontas? <laughs> Down and blitz. All right. now, now, we already know that this didn't do as well in the box office as The Lion King, because none of them did as well as in the box office as The Lion King. The Lion King made 21 times its budget. And this is considered to be the point where the Renaissance starts faltering. But, I mean, all that means is it came after the best one. <sighs> well, it, ca- it came after the most successful one. I was going to say, like, consider if Aladdin had come after Lion King, it would not be seen as faltering. Like, you would need a significant gap downward. I don't know. And I, I think also a lot of people were very iffy about Disney getting more mature. Because that's going to be the recurring theme of this and Hunchback, with people being like, mm, I don't know if it's Disney enough to be Disney. Oh, don't worry, they start sucking soon enough. <laughs> Yeah, this, the good times will not last for long. Anyway, uh, we're just sort of bumbling around here. I can't Twice remember how budget, much the Lion King made. The, so. the, the, the Lion King made 21 times its budget. 21 times, <laughs> and we said it uh, cost 35? It cost 45 million. 45, okay. The, the Lion King made... Okay, you're nine, making me do maths! The Lion King made 955 million. Oh, that's right. It was like almost a billion dollars. Yes. Was, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, this definitely didn't make that much. Um, let's... I mean, it was still definitely good. It was a commercial success by any means. It just wasn't the kind of absurd success that The Lion King was. Yeah. And that made people immediately panic. So do you think it made double its budget, ten times its budget? Oh, it made more than double, absolutely. Did it make ten times? What did we say its budget was? 50 55. Uh, yeah, it made more than ten times. 
Okay, I'm afraid no. It made seven oh, times its budget. Only seven, okay. But on the other hand, only seven times 55 million is 350 million. Yeah. Like, it's more than a quarter of a billion dollars profit. You know, but <laughs> apparently that's not good enough for some people. I mean, it's nothing so much as a testament to the absolute fucking juggernaut that The Lion King was. But you see how that happens, too. Like, I spoke last time about my my belief that The Lion King was a real, just, like, cross-demographic, uh, uh, just huge, gigantic reach that everyone loved. And this movie doesn't have anything like that broad kind of appeal. It's no. another movie for girls, for a start. Yeah, and it's a very American movie. It is very American, it's true. Like, they translated The Lion King into Maori and Zulu. Like, they oh, wanted to put this in theatres everywhere. In that sense, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think they knew it wasn't going to have the reach that, that Lion King did. Yeah. That said, the movie did still win two Oscars. Sure did. Uh, what did it get? Best song? Yeah. And... Best score. Score, okay, yeah. Which, I really... I they were both, mu- both musical, yeah. At this point in the 90s, that's Alan Menken's attendance prize. Oh! Speaking of songs, you asked me for that one moment that, like, the, the fight sequence in The Lion King, where it was like, what the hell? Um, it's the, as she's singing on the run back <clears throat> to the big climactic moment, um, where we get the shot of her semi-transparent superimposed over the top of it, like, oh, yeah. fucking 90s AMV. <laughs> That's the moment. <laughs> That's the only moment in the whole movie, but it just makes you go, That's a bit cheesy, isn't it? <laughs> And that is Pocahontas. Uh, that was a rough journey, but thank you for going on it with me. I am in. The, I, I think it would be unfair of me to say less of it than I would have of The Black Cauldron, right? Because The Black Cauldron, I could look at it and go, I loved what that movie was trying to be. Yeah, and I love what this movie would have been in a world with a different backstory. <laughs> yeah, if this. Within the framework of this movie's outlook on life, it is a very reasonable, very fair take on a terrible tragedy that still can be told to children. But we know that the framing of the worldview is kinder to itself than it should be. Absolutely. But, I mean, you know, then again, what what did we expect from Disney? It's not as if they were going to make a movie where they staunchly came out against uh, Christianity as an inherently abusable power system. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> How much of the next one is just going to be us talking about architecture, though? Ah, uh, well, we've, uh, we've just addressed the movie that uh, described my uh, New Age spiritual leanings as a preteen, and now it is time for us to proceed into the movie that described my departure from faith entirely. I think it's really fun now that we're in the part of the Renaissance where the movies stop being, as we've said, boringly excellent. We're right. going to get some hot messes <laughs> and we're going to get some weird shit. And we're going to get what is, in my mind, the last truly magnificent uh, Renaissance movie. My love, my favorite, my blessed beautiful child, Hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs>